We're starting a new series of sermons today from the book of Zechariah. And I have basically titled this series, Looking for the Shepherd. Looking for the Shepherd. And and we're going to see in Zechariah some talk about both a good shepherd and a bad shepherd. And uh, and, and so I, I wanted to begin by just saying to you why. Why Zechariah? And you know, from a positive perspective, Zechariah's interaction with his audience persuaded Judah's leaders to re-examine where they were at and what they were doing. To re-examine God's purposes for them. To re-examine it in a new light. And by doing that, he actually motivated the people to transform their ways. And I think we would all agree that we could use that kind of help. Secondly, not only does Zechariah give us this panoramic view of Israel's uh, religious future, like Daniel does, but Zechariah says more about Jesus, His glory and His work, than all of the other minor prophets combined. For instance, we're going to find passages pointing specifically to Jesus in chapters 3, chapter 6, chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 13, and chapter 14. All passages pointing to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now just to give you a feel for where we're going, Zechariah is actually divided into three main sections. Chapters 1 to 6 deal with the visions of God's purposes for Jerusalem. And then chapters 7 and 8 basically look at this idea of what is the purpose of fasting? But then chapters 9 to 14, it comes back to burdens about God's purposes for the future. Uh, In that first section, we're going to see today that there's a call to repentance in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 1. Uh, There's visions for Jerusalem that take up most of the rest of the first six chapters. And then, uh, before that section closes, before chapter 6 closes, uh, Joshua's symbolic role. And then in the last section, uh, two burdens in particular that are looked at. Uh, I know that some of you like Chuck Swindoll. We have books from Chuck Swindoll all out on our table, by the way. If you want to go out and get one and pick it up and take it for reading, devotional kind of reading. Chuck Swindoll called Zechariah a man of vision and faith. And he also believes that Zechariah should be studied because in his words, the book contains the clearest and the largest number of Messianic passages, that is, passages about Jesus as the Messiah, among the minor prophets. He also said, by the way, and I thought this was interesting, that he thinks it's possible to think of Messiah or Zechariah as a kind of miniature Isaiah. Uh, now, one of the things that we will note is that not only does Zechariah provide word pictures of Christ in his first coming, such as a passage I know, know you're familiar with uh, because we've gone over it in Bible study recently, uh, Zechariah 9.9. 9. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Where did we look at that passage? On Jesus' entry, the, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem where this was quoted as a prophecy pointing forward to that day. Zechariah, though, also speaks of how Jesus is going to come as Savior, as Judge, and ultimately as the righteous King, ruling His people from Jerusalem in chapter 14. So, what about the setting? What about the setting? Zechariah's dated visions and messages, chapters 1 to 8, all take place in the same general time as Haggai. They are both what are known as post-exilic prophets. What that means is Haggai and Zechariah are writing after some of the Jews had returned from exile to Babylon. So we're talking about October-November of 520 B.C. And they come with a call for the people of Judah to repent. Zechariah had received eight visions on that restless night of, actually we can date it, February the 15th of 519 B.C. Say, how in the world can we be that accurate? Well, you're going to see how Zechariah begins with a very precise dating. And that was followed by four messages that he preached just a, a short time later, uh, December the 7th of 518 B.C. Now, let me help you out. How long was the exile supposed to be? Seventy years. And some of the people had returned after that 70 years and started building. We saw that when we studied Nehemiah. And they got the foundations of the temple built. But then all of a sudden, opposition rose up. And it stopped. And a couple of decades had passed when Haggai and Zechariah speak up again. But here's why this is all so important. Did the people learn from their exile? No. No. And so even though they had been punished for 70 years, they didn't learn from it. Jesse and I have started reading the Old Testament again and we're up to Leviticus. I say that with a smile on my face. <laughs> but one of the things that we noticed was that if a punishment doesn't do the job, you know what's supposed to happen? It's supposed to be multiplied seven times. Seven times 70. How long? 490. Guess what happens 490 years after they went into exile? God, our Lord and Savior Jesus, came back to Jerusalem. Haggai and Zechariah came 
to call a self-centered people back to worship God. Haggai's purpose was to call for a national repentance and for the Jews to return to the rebuilding of the temple. The theme of Haggai's message is that the temple will be finished and that God will make it glorious and that Israel shall be glorious. But Israel's foes shall be cast down. Zechariah's call is for the establishment of spiritual priorities in the life of the returning community. Two decades had passed since the first group had returned. And the priests were lax in their attitude and their duties. Uh, the people were indifferent to the claims of the covenant relationship and the, what that meant in terms of their lives. And, and they had a disregard for the law. And so Zechariah saw that submission, repentance, and cleansing from sin had to precede the outpouring of divine blessing. Zechariah's theme was that spiritual renewal among the people would precede any restoration. And I don't know if you remember, but almost five years ago now when I came here, the very first book that I preached out of was James. And the message that I delivered was that unless we get things changed and start living our faith, not just saying our faith, unless we start putting our faith into action, that faith without works is dead. And that's what Zechariah is saying. And so, for a people that were newly returned from exile, he provided specific messages about their immediate circumstances. But also, what we often think of in terms of prophecy, but it's only actually a very small percentage. I think from Bob Lowry's study, 87% of prophecy to prophesy in the Bible is talking about proclaiming God's word to current situations. Only 13% has to deal with the future. We usually only think about the future aspect when we see the word prophesy. But Zechariah provides a look into the future which no doubt provided them great encouragement. Their nation would still be judged for sin, but they would also be cleansed and restored. And God would rebuild His people. So let me ask you, have you struggled with discouragement? If so, then we have another good reason why we should be studying Zechariah. While the book contains its share of judgments on the people of God that we should certainly heed ourselves, it overflows. It overflows with hope for the future reign of the Lord and His people. Our world's a mess. Need I say more? And it's easy to get caught up in the depressing events of day-to-day -day life. To lose our perspective. To begin to live as people who have no hope. 
And I hope that you'll find as we make our way through the book of Zechariah that it provides a corrective for that tendency in our lives. We have a hope that is sure. There's one other thing I need to point out before we jump in. And that is a major emphasis of Zechariah is upon hearing the word of the Lord. True to the prophetic genre, the prophetic type of literature, in our text today, verses 1 to 6, we have two parts that are commonly found. A prophetic word formula, as it begins, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. And then verses 2 to 6, a quotation of the message that was received. So let's jump into the text. This is precise dating. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu, saying, by the way, Grandpa was a priest. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. May God add his blessing to our reading of his word. Did you notice... Did you notice how Zechariah actually begins with a friendly exhortation? So, well, wait a minute, that didn't sound real friendly to me at times. Well, it did. It was. Zechariah began by announcing how angry God was with the generation of the captivity. I mean, it cost another seven times the 70. And in fact, he uses a verb uh, and that coupled with a particular grammatical device that he uses actually stresses the acuteness of the anger of God. Emphasizing their need for repentance. God saw in that present generation the same root sin which he had so hated with the captivity generation disobedience disobedience and I can't help but believe that we're under that same judgment as a nation for the disobedience of God's people therefore God called upon these people to return unto me 
And I think it's worthy to notice because true repentance is always manifest in some concrete ways. In this case, the completion of the work of the temple would indicate their true repentance. And the encouragement that goes with the exhortation, the encouragement is that a change of conduct on the part of the people would induce a change of attitude on the part of God. Go back and look. Return to me, God says. And what? I'll return to you. And this is so beautiful. Because the word in the original Hebrew language reflects progressive action. God will ever and continually return to those people that return to Him. Remember when Jesus was teaching about repentance and forgiveness? He says, Father, or Jesus, if, if somebody comes to me and, and confesses a sin, how many times should I forgive them? Seventy? Or seven? He thought he was being really good. You know, hey, seven times? A whole number of times? Remember what Jesus said? If they keep, keep coming back and ask for forgiveness... You forgive them 70 times 7. Whoa, what did I just say? 70 times 7. Just like the punishment of 70 got multiplied 7 times, you multiply the number of forgivenesses by that 70. Kind of a flip. Then, to make sure these people understood and to make sure that you and I understand, three times in the opening words, it points to the fact that this is a message from God. First, what's called the messenger formula. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Second, what's called the oracular formula. Talking about the oracle, the spokenness, the word of the Lord came. And then thirdly, in just six verses, the declaration formula said the Lord of hosts, which got repeated three times. Zechariah wants to make sure that this isn't just what he thinks. This isn't just what he feels. This is what God has told him to make sure these people understood. And so he moves from that to what I see as a fitting caution. A fitting caution. I hope you noticed how in verse 4, Zechariah urged his people, Don't become like your fathers. Don't become like your fathers. The Jews boasted of their fathers. Again, in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus was talking to them about how the stones would rise up and praise Him. And the people came back and said, We, we worship God. We know who our Father is. Who's your father? They boasted of their fathers. But Zechariah shows that their fathers were actually headstrong and obstinate 
And that ancient example and long usage wouldn't really justify disobedience. You realize, I hope, if not, you're going to learn it right now. That one of the last books of the Old Testament is not actually Malachi. Oh, it... Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are right there near the end, but also one of the last books is 2 Chronicles. I know, you say, well, wait a minute, it's way up there near the front. It's in the section with the history books. And if you read the closing parts of 2 Chronicles, it's talking about what happened while they were in exile and when they returned from exile. And 2 Chronicles chapter 36 verses 15 and 16 says this, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising His words and scoffing at His prophecies, uh, His prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people until there was no remedy. God's Word had been spurned by the fathers. And this is actually the first of four times that Zechariah will cite the fathers as an example of apostasy and disobedience and the warnings they were given. The fathers didn't listen to the former prophets. I.e., that is, those who lived before the captivity and during the captivity. People like Jeremiah. And their behavior aggravated their guilt. Not only did they have the law, but they had been often called to repent by God's prophets. And those prophets forcefully yet with tact and love had urged their fathers to turn please turn please from your evil ways and your evil deeds but their fathers Zechariah says they did not hear nor hearken unto me rejecting the prophetic word is equivalent to rejecting God himself So Zechariah comes with a forceful plea, appeal. They needed to know that God's word was fulfilled upon the fathers. And so to make his point, Zechariah asks them three questions. They're right there in the text. First, your fathers, where are they? Of course they were dead. Second, And the prophets, do they live forever? Of course they don't. Zechariah now makes his point. God's reminder. But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants and the prophets, or my servants, the prophets, did not overtake your fathers. Or did they not overtake your fathers? You see, 
the divine threat spoken by those prophets caught up with the disobedience. The point of the message of God is infallible. The messengers and the original auditors are going to die. But the Word of God lives on. In fact, every real penitent, every real repentant person is a witness to this truth. How many times? I know I have. How many times have you heard someone confess something that they had done wrong and then said that their sin or their wrong had, quote, found them out? I was talking to a guy one time when I was a police officer. Had no religious context to it at all. He looked at me and he said, because I was serving a warrant, I knew nothing about the case. He looked at me and he said, well, I didn't do this one. But he said, I guess all my other mistakes found me out. Go back with me for a minute to the story that I told, that Jesus told, that I shared with you last week. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man obviously would not believe the evil and danger of living a presumptuous and carnal life. That is, until he was made to experience its bitter fruits. I'm sure that all those times that he was wearing purple and eating luxurious meals and walking by that beggar at his gate, he was just like the other story Jesus told about the two men who prayed and one said, Oh, thank God I'm not like them. Thank God I'm, I'm not like those poor people. I've got my nice house, my nice clothes. I've got so many good things. And his five brothers... I have a feeling from what the story is is that they were walking in his footsteps as well the same way. Why else would he have asked for Father Abraham to, to send back someone to warn them and tell them? The rich man thought that if a messenger could just be sent to them from the dead they would have been better informed and would have listened. But you remember what Father Abraham said to them in the story? Why, no. If someone comes back to them from the dead, they're not going to believe. Otherwise, they would have believed Moses and the prophets. And they didn't do that. Isn't that the same thing we're hearing Zechariah say to these people? You didn't believe the prophets. You didn't believe Moses, the law, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You didn't believe that apparently because you weren't living like it. I've told you this story before. This is intentional. I'm going to tell you it again. 
I'm being a little snippy, I know, but I've been reminded recently about how often I'm repeating things. When my dad was preaching down in southwestern Illinois, he went to the lumber company to get some wood one day for a project that he and my grandpa were working on. Let me set the stage and tell you what the project was. They were converting a closet into the house to an indoor toilet so that we didn't have to use the outhouse anymore. And I remember that. My dad got to the lumber company and he saw the son of one of the men of the church. Met him for the first time. And he said, you know, we sure would like you to come to church also like your father does. He said, he's, he's a good man. And the son looked at him and he said, well, that's the reason I don't come to church. He says, because you see my dad on Sunday. I see him the rest of the week. You see, not only did Zechariah's people have the law and the prophets, not only did the ones who Jesus is talking, telling the story to with the rich man and Lazarus have the law and the prophets, but so do we. Not only that, we have the New Testament accounts of the life of Jesus in the Gospels. We have the letters from the Apostles, all bearing the same testimony. So listen again to how Zechariah brings the first section to a close. So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has He dealt with us. It's a recognition that they were getting what they deserved. That anything good that comes our way is really just a result of grace and mercy. We're going through old pictures at the house. We have been all week. We got a table and a couple of, of coffee tables and another table that are all just boxes of pictures sorted by date and event. My wife and daughter are going through it. I sat down and did it. I'm not saying this because I don't think she's beautiful now because I do. But man, when I looked at some of those pictures of my wife when we first got together when she was 18 years old and I remembered I said to her with one of the pictures in my hand I don't see what in the world you were worried about an old ugly man like me. We don't deserve anything good that we have. And until you convince yourself of that fact, you'll never be in a position to understand what God has done for you. So here's what I believe is the challenge of the passage for you and I today. We need to learn from our past. 
We need to learn from our histories. And especially to learn from our mistakes. The great Hall of Fame UCLA basketball coach John Wooden once said, if you're not making mistakes, then you're not doing anything. I'm positive that a doer makes mistakes. I've long had an interest in martial arts. Bruce Lee said something that not only gives me encouragement, but actually inspires me to be a person of integrity. Bruce Lee once said, Mistakes are always forgivable if one has the courage to admit them. The call of Zechariah is the same call that was given that Autumn read to us from Revelation chapter 2. The same call that was given to the church at Ephesus. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. In other words, realize where you're at. Admit those mistakes. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And restoration can take place. But we have to follow the three instructions Jesus gave. First, to the people at Ephesus through the angel, He said, remember. Literally, keep on remembering what we've lost. Cultivate a desire to regain that close communion with God once again. And then we have to repent. We have to change our mind. And again, you need to see it. This is not repentance. Oh, that's a mistake. That's not repentance. That's just saying, I'm sorry I did something wrong and I'm going to kind of go around it and head on. This is repentance. Oh, I made a mistake. So you visually see the difference. Repentance isn't just saying you're sorry. Repentance is realizing that you're going in the wrong direction. And that you've got to change your mind and head in a different direction. And when you do that, and when you confess your sins, 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then third we got to go back to our first works. Often when I counsel with couples that are struggling in their marriage, and they start telling me about what's been going on and what's been happening and how they've kind of drifted apart, I give them an assignment. And I even have offered from time to time when there were kids involved to watch the kids for them. I give them an assignment. Go out on a date just like the two of you did back in those days when you said everything was so neat go out on a date and start doing some of those things you did at the beginning that helped you fall in love 
And I think that a good place for us as a church to begin, a good place for us as believers to begin, is to start with prayer. That's why I said for this year, prayer is the first thing we're going to do. Start with prayer. Confess some of those things. Repent of them. Do some Bible reading. Meditating on what it says. As Jesse and I were going through the passage the other night, I hit the pause button a couple times. And I said, what you just heard? And I related it to another passage, another section in the Bible. That's why. That's what's going on. Meditate on it. Obedient service. You are only committed to things that are taking your time and your energy and your effort and which you're investing in also monetarily. Jesus said, where your heart is, that's where you're going to be putting your money also. And he also reversed it in another place and said, where your money is, that's where your heart is. And worship. Worship. Not just for an hour or so on Sunday morning. Stop. Look outside. Thank you, God, for this beautiful world in which we live. Help me to be a better steward. Look at your children. Thanks, God, for giving us such a, an excellent young man or young woman. And let them know that. Let them know that. Take time to worship God. Let's pray.